Large technology companies are a new type of industry. Their power and reach is resistant to a comparison of previous generations, such as big oil. Alex Kantrowitz is a journalist who has covered big technology for much of his career, and he currently runs Big Technology, a newsletter and podcast about the biggest technology companies in the world. He's also the author of Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Alex joins the show to talk about his work and share his thoughts on big technology. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. This is a legendary show, and I'm, I'm glad to be on with you. <laughs> so your book is about how tech giants plan to stay on top of the business world. My main question is, what is new about what tech giants have access to relative to businesses in the past? I mean, haven't businesses always plotted ways to stay on top of the competition? No doubt. I don't think the uh, concept of having a plan to stay on top forever is new, but I do think the capacity is new. And I'm particularly excited to be able to speak with you about this, given your past working as an Amazon engineer, because I think you might have seen the beginnings of this firsthand uh, as you coded up, I believe, logistic software for the company. So I think what's new here is the technology that we have that's enabled us to be able to spend time on more inventive tasks as opposed to tasks that support the business. And Amazon is a great example. You know, I think every company has always come in to every day saying, let's act as if it's their first, but they've spent so much time just supporting their flagship products that by the time they get around to wanting to invent the future, they just don't have any time to do that. And I think what the tech giants have done really well is use technology in their workplace to give themselves the time to be able to invent as opposed to uh, focusing all their time on supporting the stuff that got them there in the first place. Okay. Now, on the subject of technology, my perspective is that modern technology has unlocked such a plethora of avenues to explore in terms of invention that there's no one company that can capture them all. And there's no two companies. There's no end companies that can capture them all. There's so many opportunities that you can always have new companies spring up. And we've seen new tech giants come to light. I mean, Airbnb, Stripe, those seem like two companies that are poised to dominate entirely new sectors of online business that that the mainstays are, are somehow not equipped to handle. So who is to say that you know, this is this is necessarily a, a negative thing. Maybe there's just so much greenfield opportunity that 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 we want businesses to be constructed around dominating entire sectors because there's too many sectors to capture. Yeah, I agree with you that there is a greenfield opportunity, and I don't want the tech giants to be the only companies dominating the economy. I mean, I guess sort of the whole point of the book was saying these are enormous companies. They are totally bucking the typical. Uh, life cycle of a big company, which is typically companies grow big, then they grow bureaucratic and they grow slow. They move into a period of stasis and fall apart. And the tech giants have been able to turn that cycle on its head and they remain inventive even though they're large. And so my idea with this book was saying the rest of the economy has a real opportunity to learn from these companies and to say, once we get our flagship product up and running, like Airbnb, for instance, you know, doing bookings of home or Stripe doing, you know, the financial layer underpinning transactions on the internet, you know, how can we make sure that we don't remain stagnant? Because last century, companies would stay on the Fortune, on the S&P 500 
for 70 years. Now the average lifespan is 15 years. So back in the day, one idea would sort of give you a, an entire lifetime of success. Now you need maybe three or four ideas in order to be able to sustain success for the same, same amount of time. And so I think the key to the modern economy is really reinvention. And the tech giants do that extremely well. And so by unlocking and learning about what they do, I think that we can end up in an economy where, I mean, yes, we have challengers, but we definitely have these big companies dominating. And my idea is we need to get to a point where we have you know, some of that success more evenly spread out across the economy, not just through tech firms, but you know, firms across every industry. And I think learning the methods of the tech giants is a good way to get started. Was the book that you ended up writing, was that the same book that you conceived of when you started writing it? Or did the did the mission or the idea or the concept of the book change as you were writing it? Oh, man, Jeff, I think if you could, if you could see the book proposal and what it turned out to, it's just, it's radically, radically different. So I initially, I had been reporting on Facebook for BuzzFeed, and now I'm doing my own Substack newsletter called Big Technology and, and podcast called Big Technology Podcast. But I had been at BuzzFeed reporting on Facebook and I had seen, you know, a few interesting things inside the company, the way they use technology in the workplace, not just in terms of building it into their products, but how they actually change the way they work with technology. And then also the way that they have this culture of feedback, right? And I thought that that was interesting that everybody inside Facebook feels, or at least in, you know, in, you know, in theory should be, should feel empowered to go up to anybody and, sh- and share their idea and share feedback on a certain product or feature. And then, of course, I saw the way that they... They led through crisis. And I said, what if we did a book, sort of like four mini books in and of itself, where I go to each one of these companies and say, you know, how do they use technology? How do they lead through crisis? And what's their defining feature of their culture? I had Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google in there. I didn't even have Microsoft in uh, in the proposal. But then I, I thought that as I, you know, as I got deeper into the reporting, there had to be a through line in terms of what's made these companies successful. And that's when I really started to learn how the technology actually plays a big role uh, into their ability to reinvent and this mentality of them deciding that their flagship products, you know, were important, but weren't the only thing. And so that animated the book that we changed the title from the tech titans to always day one, which is sort of a hat tip to Jeff Bezos's theory of reinvention or, or culture of reinvention inside Amazon, and then looking at Microsoft in the way that they reinvented themselves from a company that was essentially all about the desktop operating system to one that's now about cloud and mobile. They, I had to include them. So we added a chapter of Microsoft, and, and that's sort of how the book took shape. How else did your perspective about the technology companies shift as you were writing the book? Well, I certainly, it made me think a little bit about the nature of leadership and sort of this new path of leadership that they were defining, you know, for a long time, you know, I I had a a sense that something was different inside these companies from the ones that I had worked in, because I, you know, started my career buying ads and selling ad tech. So I I saw there was something different in the way the tech giants operated. uh, And I wasn't quite sure what it was. And, And I think that it was astonishing to me how they're really forging this new way to run a company, one that really models itself after the engineer's way of thinking. I think most companies in the past have been run with a real sales mentality. You build your flagship product and then you sell it. And that means that when there are ideas for new products or or features, 
you know, in the pre-technology age, you'd have to sort of run it up this chain of, of approvals, right? You'd tell your manager and they'd tell their manager and they'd tell ma- their manager. And if anybody along the chain decides that they don't really like the idea or the message gets miscommunicated in a game of telephone, then it sort of, you know, it doesn't happen. And I think with an engineering culture, you really see something that's more flat where people feel empowered to go up to leadership or people across divisions and levels and then share their message, uh, share their idea. And, and it doesn't really matter where your rank is or your level or your, or your division. And I do think that the thing that struck me was the fact that these companies have modeled their leadership systems after you know the heart of an engineer, where people feel empowered to speak across divisions, where people feel empowered to bring ideas to the top, and where it's not all about selling a flagship product, but, but building new ones and, and reinventing again and again. There's been a brewing animosity between technology journalism and the technology companies itself. And you see this play out most acutely on Twitter, where you see just arguments about kind of the effects of technology companies or the responsibilities of technology companies or the stances of technology companies. You see kind of an accusatory stance by some tech journalists and then kind of a defensive stance from the technologists, the entrepreneurs. And it becomes kind of a war where the tech journalists see themselves in this kind of, it's like a, uh, they see themselves as the, who's, you know, whoever, whoever's the, who's the author of um, that book about the meatpacking plants in the 19, uh, 1920s or the 19, uh, 1930s. The book's called The Jungle, yeah. Yeah, yeah, The Jungle, The Jungle. Who's, who's the author of that? Slipping my mind right now. But yeah, The Jungle is the book. Right. Yeah. So just, you know, but the tech journalists see themselves as, as holding the feet of the tech entrepreneurs to the fire. And the entrepreneurs just see themselves as like trying to innovate. Do you see yourself as as in either of those camps? Because I know, like, I don't see myself as in either of those camps. I, like, I came from the world of technology. I came from engineering. And now I'm more of a journalist. Uh, so I don't really sit in either of those camps. But do you find yourself in either camp? Well, I would definitely consider myself a journalist. And, I, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, with this book and with big technology, I am trying to chart, you know, not a different way, but sort of I'm trying to live the values where I really think that, you know, this conversation should go. And to me, you know, as a reporter, I would never shy away from a difficult story. If I find something that's nefarious inside a company, of course, I would report it. I also think that there's an unfortunate issue right now where it seems like reporters and, you know, some members of the tech community are talking past each other. And it's a big issue in our society at large. And it doesn't doesn't do anyone any good. So, you know, I am a journalist. You know, I'm not, I don't view it as my mission to prop up tech companies. And I do see, I see real value in journalism that exposes real ills. Uh, and there's there's plenty of them. And I think the tech industry should be receptive when there's criticism and say, hey, what sparked this? Like, for instance, when a number of employees speak up about what's going on in Coinbase, you know, the there there's definitely like, you know, bad press stings. But it's also, you know, a moment where you might want to take a step back and ask, well, why did all these employees come out and speak about, you know, some of the ills of our culture? And is there anything there? I think that's the best way to have a productive conversation. But for me, most importantly, like, you know, I, I think about like what the journalism accomplishes and, and you know, this adversarial 
uh, relationship, you know, to some extent, adversarial relationship is necessary. But I do think that the recent wars that have been going on are counterproductive. And I'm personally hoping that, you know, there's more of a dialogue that that uh, ensues as opposed to, you know, accusations and, and fights. What did happen at Coinbase? I, I'm not familiar with that episode. It's Coinbase. A number of uh, black employees spoke out about culture inside Coinbase, saying it was unwelcoming to them. Uh, the New York Times reached out to Coinbase about the story. Uh, Coinbase then front ran the New York Times, which is sort of like an industry term for they went to Medium and posted a blog post about the impending New York Times story and why it was wrong. And then it, it sort of after in, in the aftermath, there was this whole discussion between members of the tech industry about, you know, and this happens through each negative news cycle about boycotting, you know, the New York Times and, you know, going direct. So starting their own publications and not counting on the and not working with the press to filter out uh, their opinions. And, and of course, journalists, you know, hit back and said that, you know, some said, you know, we're, you know, this sort of distant de-incentivizes, you know, the courtesy to go for a fact check. And it, it turned into this whole mess. But it sort of encapsulates a lot of what you talked about, you know, at the outset of your question, which is, you know, this this brewing war between journalists and, and the tech world. Gotcha. I just, yeah, I guess like, just to, you know, put a point on it, you know, I don't think that these two sides need to be at war. Of course, they're not going to have a friendship relationship. But I, I just, uh, it concerns me that there's been so much animosity out there. And of course, I'm doing my best, uh, w- you know, with big technology to, and it doesn't mean, you know, be soft on these companies, but it does mean sort of show a way to, to cover them with, with nuance that I think is necessary here. And uh, I also call upon folks in the tech world to understand that the purpose of journalism isn't necessarily to prop up companies. Of course, you know, everyone wants the stuff that they do well to be recognized, you know, but but like if there is, I would say the first reaction instead of trying to condemn the press should be what's actually wrong, you know, inside our, or is there anything wrong inside our company and taking our egos out of this, you know, is there any truth here and should we investigate it and rectify it? And I, and I think that that would lead to a better, you know, more healthy tech industry because that's where growth comes from. Definitely. I think one problem is the size of these companies it it inhibits the ability to report on them in a sufficiently nuanced way and and the example i would provide is there there was that article about the the workplace environment at amazon i think 5 or 6 years ago the new york times article and it, you know amazon is just a gigantic company and so reporting on 5 or 6 cases of people who felt overstressed at work it's not hard to find five or six people who are overstressed at work at Amazon just because there's so many people. And then I think, you know, the general population might get the sense that that's a case of the overall culture. And that's just a, perhaps a, a mistaken, mistaken identity. But I don't know that that's an issue that I remember we, that I remember um, causing a, a similar amount of yeah distress. Were you there for the Times article when that thing hit? I was... I think I had just left mm-hmm. when that article published, and that was not my experience mm-hmm. working there. So I I think that like there are articles that tend to go overboard, and I and I think that like my view of that New York Times article was that you know while what they you know while there were no factual errors as far as I could tell inside the story, you know it was 
it was a little off. And, you know, I think that, you know, you having been in Amazon, me having shown up in Seattle and spent a couple of months there trying to learn about Amazon culture, we could both agree that Amazon is a really difficult place to work. Uh, and of course, it depends on your manager. And, you know, when you find some of those cases, you're going to, you know, it becomes this, this, you know, juicy story that some folks can't resist. And, and in fact, that I think when Amazon tried to discredit the story by taking on the the key source uh, who had come out on record and sort of describing some issues with their employment record. New York Times said they're just one, among one of many people that have, have cried at their desk. And so they felt compelled to to report that. But also people cry at their desk at every company. I mean, I've almost cried at my desk and I'm the only person in mine. So, but, but I, so, so there are going to be articles that are off. And maybe that New York Times article was one. But I also will push back on this notion that it's impossible to report, you know, on the breadth of these companies. It's hard, uh, but it's doable. And, you know, that was definitely what I dedicated myself to with Always Day One, which was, I said, look, we need to learn a little bit more about these cultures and the way the companies work and their processes and the technology inside. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, was going to be to write a book about it, give myself the sufficient amount of time and breathing room you know, in the reporting process to be able to do this right. And so I addressed that Times article in the Amazon chapter of my story. I ended up speaking with probably, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30, you know, current and former Amazon employees, everyone from Jeff Wilkie, the departing CEO of Worldwide Consumer, to people working in fulfillment centers, and and then former tech employees. And I think that, you know, I'm happy to hold up the Amazon chapter in always day one as an example of something that you know, I'm standing by it. Like, I think that this gets it right. You know, I think that it dives into some of the, you know, the aspects of Amazon culture we haven't heard a lot about, including hands off the wheel, the the autom- the um, automation program inside the retail organization that's automated a lot of the vendor manager's work. People who used to be on the phone with brands stocking the warehouses and handing that over to machine learning and how that changes a company. And was it easy? No, I mean, Amazon's a company now of, 1.2 million people or thereabouts. It was 600,000 when I started reporting. So these companies are also growing fast. But I think that with the proper amount of dedication and commitment to hearing all voices, it is possible to, to tell the story of, of these companies. And again, it's not going to happen every time, but but I think it's doable. And I think that when it when it does happen, you know, we, we all benefit from it because we can start to learn a little bit about the way some of these massive organizations operate. And and I think that there is something to be said for, you know, taking that juicy news nugget and saying, does this belong, you know, which, you know, let's say, for instance, people crying at their desks and saying, does this belong in the lead and the headline? Or is this a detail that belongs deeper in the story of something that's more, you know, nuanced and complex? Uh, So I personally would have put the crying anecdote deeper down. In fact, I did uh, in the Amazon story in the Amazon chapter of the book. But yeah, this stuff is tough. I I agree with you, but I don't think it's impossible. How did you manage to get a conversation with Jeff Wilkie? That's actually a funny story. So even before I sold the book, I I had booked... So I I live in San Francisco. I booked a flight to New York to uh, meet with publishers uh, after I had a book proposal in with them. And then I booked a flight from New York to Seattle. And I was going to Seattle whether or not I had a book deal. <laughs> and I had made this agreement 
to cat sit my friend's mom's cat, Lady the Cat, and said, you know, we had a 20, 20 day deal. I was like, all right, I'm going to stay at your house for 20 days. If I get if I get the book deal, I'll be reporting on Amazon. If not, it will be extremely depressing, but I'll at least have the cat to keep me company. And I landed at Amazon without a de- uh, sorry, I landed in Seattle without a deal. The day afterwards, Penguin Portfolio, who ended up being my publisher, said, we want to work with you. I said, great, this is, this is an amazing opportunity. I'm going to have a chance to report on Amazon. And there, I had, I had a one-way to Seattle. I had no return flight back to San Francisco. And I, and I met with Amazon. And I was like, look, you, know, you can take a look at some of my track record at BuzzFeed. I know what I'm doing. And I'm not leaving this city until I get the story. And basically, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't like me saying, work with me or else. It was me saying, I'm here to do the work. And I'm going to I'm going to do it thoroughly. And I think they saw the commitment. And I, of course, made I spoke with more people not through not that they didn't give me access to through the front door than than those they did. But I made a determination to leave that city with with the real story. And I think they saw that and said, all right, we'll set you up with a conversation with Wilkie and let you go visit a couple of fulfillment centers, including the ones with robotics in there, because they knew how technology impacts work was an important part of what I was doing. And then they also set up a conversation with a guy named Ralph Hebrick, who uh, was their head of, of machine learning, who helped implement this hands-off-the-wheel automation program inside the retail organization, and just basically giving me the story of, of how it happened inside Amazon. And, and I detail that thoroughly inside the book. And so, you know, at the end of the day, like, I, I you know, this was the first book that they they worked with since the Everything Store with Brad Stone, which I believe came out in 2014 or 2013, somewhere thereabouts. So it'd been five or six years since Amazon participated in the book, in a book. But I mean, man, sometimes it just takes showing up and, um, you know, being committed to doing the work and, and then, you know, things happen in your favor. And I think that's certainly what happened, uh, you know, with me in Seattle. And, and Amazon went from being, you know, chapter number two or three to being chapter number one, because I found, you know, the way that they operate their workplace to be so fascinating and so uh, out of the box for most other people, that it was worth detailing and, and making the focal point. And that's where Always Day One, you know, the Jeff Bezos saying, becomes the title. Can you go deeper on that anecdote, the hands off the wheel anecdote, just to give people a sample of what the book entails? Totally. So the book will basically go through the culture, processes, and technology of all five big technology companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. We spoke in the beginning about how, you know, all companies plan to stay on top forever. And today, reinvention is key in order to be able to stay on top, given the, fa- the fact that there's technology that enables you to start a company in as you know quick as time as you ever could and for as little money as you ever could. So big technology companies, any company needs to be reinventing or else you know, the, their competitors will, will sort of take their market share, given how easy it is to start and build products. So the way that they do this is they separate work into, you know, and this is sort of a terminology that I use, but I think all the big tech companies and maybe outside of Apple, think about work in two categories. One is idea work, anything involved in building something new. And the other is execution work, probably should have used the word support work for it, but anything involved in, in you know, keeping your flagship business operating. And so Amazon is definitely, and I think that like, you know, and you've talked in previous keynotes about how we've changed from the industrial era. And I think in the, the industrial era, everyone was doing execution work, right? 
there would be someone who would say, who would have an idea and say, let's make a widget. And then, you know, they'd be in the factory making widgets. Then we shifted to the knowledge economy where, you know, people's ideas mattered. And, you know, though people had ideas for new things, uh, new products, you know, we'd be spending so much time in the workplace, you know, on the flagship products that we didn't have time to build anything new, which we've spoken about. And so I think that machine learning, automation, and other enterprise technology has brought us into this third era where we're able to use technology to minimize execution work and make room for idea work so we can actually have the time to reinvent. And that's sort of core to the Amazon story. So in the retail organization, and Jeff, I'd be curious to hear if you saw the beginning of this, but just about the time that you were leaving, 2014, there was a push from leadership to use technology to minimize the execution work and make room for idea work, essentially, Let's let you know, basically, Amazon was saying we have 20 years of historical retail data here, and we can probably use algorithms to make better decisions of what we should order, you know, which items we should put in which fulfillment centers when, so that when people are ready to buy, it can get to them, you know, in, in a short amount of time, a shorter amount of time. And, you know, we don't have all these people spending their time on doing this process that could be easily automated so we can free them up to do new things. And so basically what happened was they, they started out calling the project Project Yoda. You know, instead of the vendor managers doing this work themselves, they'd use the force and the force would be machine learning. And then they eventually called it hands off the wheels. So eventually their algorithms got good enough where they started predicting, okay, like let's say, you know, there would be a person on the phone with Tide saying we want this many, you know, units of detergent in these fulfillment centers at this, at this time. The algorithm started to be able to predict that better than the humans could. And it started showing up in their software with an automate button. And, and eventually uh, it became so good that the company said, all right, we are going to, instead of having you do this, we're going to give you goals where, you know, X percent, sometimes up to 80% of people's activity uh, needed to be automated. And eventually, you know, it went largely to the machines. And so, you know, what, what Amazon did was it took this, it took these, the, these uh, support related tasks handed them over to technology to make room for tasks for, for the you know people inside the company who had been working on these retail functions to become more inventive. And if I could have maybe one more minute, I could tell you this one story of how this actually worked in practice. I grant you that one minute. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> okay. So there was a guy inside Amazon's who was running Amazon's product and promotions vision called Dilip Kumar. And uh, probably right around the time that you were there, he, he starts to move to become Jeff Bezos' uh, right-hand man, something called a technical advisor, where you follow Bezos around to every meeting and just sort of see how he runs the company. Andy Jassy famously was the first one before he went to found uh, AWS. And so, so Kumar goes from pricing and promotions, work, he shadows Bezos, and by the time he's done, Pricing and promotions is on its way to become automated. So instead of going back to do that, you know, work supporting Amazon's flagship product, he gets a bunch of folks together who have been in the retail organization and said, why don't we create something new? And what we're going to aim at is using technology to solve one of the most annoying parts or what we find to be the most annoying part of shopping in real life. And they settled on checkout. And so then that group said, okay, we're going to try to build a supermarket without checkout. So at first they say, Let's create, you know, a big, what eventually what really amounted to a big vending machine where you sort of punch your order and then a bunch of tubes bring you your, your products. Um, but they, they figured that would just be kicking, you know, the can down the line. And they eventually came up with Amazon Go, which is the store that you can just scan in, walk and 
take whatever you want off the shelves, cameras and sensors, figure out what you've taken, and then we'll charge you when you walk out. No scanning or checkout needed. And so, you know, by using hands off the wheel, Amazon was able to take this support work, free it up, take the people who had been working on those projects, put them towards idea work, and then they go out and invent what's going to become, you know, a mainstay in Amazon's brick and mortar retail strategy, which is Go. Technology they're going to use not only in their in their own supermarkets, but license out to others. And I think it's going to be a key pillar of Amazon's business moving forward. So it's just one small little anecdote of how these technology companies, how these big tech companies use technology uh, to change the way they work and reinvent uh, and remain competitive despite their old age. Now, just hearing that anecdote makes me think that you had to go into a lot of depth into each of these different companies and five different companies is a lot. How long did it take you to write this book? Oh, it took a while. I mean, let's see. Probably the first, the introduction is a meeting that I had with Mark Zuckerberg, which starts in 2017. So, I mean, the story really spans like over the course of about two years. But I ended up taking, you know, a full year off uh, from BuzzFeed to do the reporting and the writing. It was all original stuff. Yeah. So it was about about a two-year process to, to do it. And, and from what I understand, that was fairly fast for the way books usually come together. And was it exhausting to to try to cover so many companies at one time? Well, I would say first it was invigorating because, you know, one of the cool things about writing this book was I started with a central question, what are these companies doing differently than anyone else? And man, I just kept learning things. And, you know, perhaps it's just an indication of my nerdiness, but <laughs> that really excited me because it gave me an opportunity to, once I learned something about one company, I could go back and probe whether the other companies were doing were doing that similarly or different and whether I need to ask different questions to the folks that I had, you know, met before. And, and, and honestly, like when I moved out to the Bay Area in 2015, one of my main goals was to just kind of figure out how this ecosystem works. And I don't think it was really until, you know, I got into this work that I started to really feel like I had an understanding of how things operate. So it was invigorating for sure. Now, was it also exhausting? For sure. I mean, it was definitely hard. There were, especially because of the speed we were trying to put the book together with, you know, the stuff is kinetic. We're talking about five companies, five leaders, who knows how long they're going to stay in their position. Uh, so we wanted to get it out in like as, as quick a time as possible. Also, the stories could have gotten stale over time. Although now I feel like they're pretty evergreen. So yeah, there were many late nights and long weekends, you know, work, working more than I ever had in my entire life to get this thing out. And yeah, it was, but it was pretty rewarding when you'd be able to see it packaged together, you know, in a physical book and then to see it get shipped out to folks was, was pretty special and something I'll always remember. Do you have another anecdote from the book that stands out as illustrative of what you conceive of as different about these big technology companies? Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things that they do is they also, when it's, it's uh, interesting, it's interesting that these companies touch so many people's lives because when they find something interesting that works internally, they can sometimes ship it out to the general public. And that certainly happened with Microsoft. So Microsoft, uh, you know, they rely on their sales force in a pretty big way. You know, they have all these enterprise clients and I'm sure many of your listeners have been on the phone with Microsoft sales. And so the question is, for them is how do they, you know, look, having worked as a salesperson, this is the big problem. And this is the problem Microsoft struggled with. You never really know who to call 
you know, you have this, you know, customer relationship management tool. Sometimes it's Salesforce. That's what I worked in. Um, obviously, in Microsoft, they were working on their own their own CRM. Uh, yeah, their own CRM. And so, what you do as a salesperson usually is you just spend, you know, your day is combing through and just going account by account. Who have I last reached out to? Who have I followed up at with? You know, why is this deal not moved? And it's extremely arduous. You probably spend eighty to eighty percent of your time, you know, figuring out what your next operation is, and then twenty percent of your time actually doing it. And then like, okay, yeah, you can sell and meet your quota, but are you really adding, you know, a ton of value to the organization? Because you are speaking with people who are using the product every single day. So the salespeople are the best researchers that you can find uh, and generally lead to product improvements. And what would it be like, you know, if their day could be freed up to be better at that? And so Microsoft's machine learning team came to the, you know, folks that were selling and said, we could probably, you know, internally they have a research organization. And they could, they said, we could probably use our machine learning tools to make your lives easier. And not only we can we can take data, not only looking at the accounts that you're working on, but accounts across the company, and figure out what your next action should be based off of the nature of your accounts and your, you know, your your the cadence of your reach outs, and what's going on with the companies you're speaking with. And so they built a tool internally called the Daily Recommender, and we basically recommend 50 actions to a salesperson a day. And when, you know, if the salesperson couldn't get to all of them, it would recommend less. If they could get to through all of them, it would recommend more. And the, cu- the cool thing about this was they were able to see, you know, did our recommendation lead to a sale? If it led to a sale, they thought it was a good recommendation. If it didn't lead to a sale, they said, okay, maybe it could have been better. And they were able to optimize the system uh, by building something like this. So, you know, of course, Microsoft sells its own CRM, and that eventually makes its way into Microsoft Dynamics as a feature. And I just found that fascinating to see how, you know, the world changes inside the tech giants first, and then the world changes for the rest of us. And so I felt that, you know, it was sort of, uh, you know, it was reaffirming what I had uh, gone into the process with saying, which is that this is probably what the future of work looks like, uh, and they have a head start. And, you know, maybe by digging into the stories like this, you know, we can we can figure out where it's going for the rest of us. And again, like, you know, this is sort of going back to this idea of changing the nature of work. You know, salespeople had not only were salespeople be able, you know, able to be more effective in their days because of software like this, but they were also able to, you know, spend more time speaking to customers and then pass those ideas back, you know, internally through a system uh, that Microsoft had called OneList. Uh, that would basically be a list of all you know build requests throughout throughout the organization that they would use to prioritize what they would build next. And I think it's going pretty well for them. You know, depending on the day, they're either the most or the second most valuable company in the world, and their transformation's pretty been pretty fascinating to watch. Are there any unanswered questions that writing the book left you with at the end? Yeah, I mean, I guess like the the main question is, we're going into this economy where we invent faster than we ever have before. And so how do we do that thoughtfully? And, you know, can we be in an economy where, you know, where we can build and then also think about some of the repercussions from what we build? Because every new platform uh, comes with problems, whether it's things break on your end or, you know, potentially, you know, ramifications to society. And so, you know, I, I guess like the main questions I leave with are, you know, can we build thoughtfully and can we create a society where, you know, these tools that 
sometimes will concentrate wealth among a smaller percentage of the population than we had, you know, previously, you know, what will be the impact on society uh, because of that? And is there a way to grow and distribute the gains more evenly? And so I think that one part of it is just giving the rest of folks opportunity to co-op these systems. So it's, they're not just the domain of the tech giants. Uh, but I don't think that's the full story. But, you know, I'm hoping that with the book, you know, I did a small part in democratizing some of that knowledge and, you know, hopefully leading to something that's, you know, where growth is more equitable across across the country and across the world. I'd like to get some perspective from you on journalism. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but, you know, the size of these tech companies and the influence that they have on our everyday life really has put us in a, a different historical position than we've had in the past. You know, you can talk about separation of church and state, those being two large monolithic influences on our trains of thought. But now the tech companies have as much or more influence on our everyday thought uh, as do church and state. How do you think that impacts our everyday life? And and how does it impact the way that journalism pr- progresses? Well, look, I mean, if this is if this is what's going on, and I think it is, right? These companies have more impact on on, on what we do, you know, than I think any set of five companies ever before, just in terms of the nature they filter information. And I mean, you think about in the workday how much how many of these tools we use. We're spending all of our time on the big five's tools, pretty much, or much of it, not all, because there are others out there. But I, I think, look, when it, when I when once you consider that. Think about the role that journalism has. And I think there's an important part of journalism that's often overlooked, which is that the telling the stories and how, helping people figure out what's, what these companies are doing, what's going on behind the scenes, how they think, how they feel, and how, the impact of their products, that takes on a greater importance. And so, so even the straight stories that just say, you know, that, that sort of reveal a tiny bit of the thinking of the way that these companies operate, or a tiny bit of the thinking behind one decision or another become increasingly important. I kind of think we need way more tech journalists than we have today to be able to go deeper into what's going on and sort of explain these folks, to explain these to folks, because ultimately, you know, the, the goal has to be to empower people to, to succeed in this world and to be aware of the forces acting on them in this world. And so, you know, for me, tech journalism, you know, we all know started out with a bunch of gadget reviews, but it's evolved significantly in the past decade and especially in the past few years and it will continue to evolve it will sorry it will continue to evolve and yeah i i think that this is not going away like i i think that society is going to be hungry to hear about the impact of these companies you know on people's daily lives and and it's an important duty for journalists to be able to tell these stories honestly and with nuance and as vigorously as possible because ultimately secrecy is is not going to benefit anyone but those keeping the secrets. Have you done much coverage of the legal representation of these tech companies relative to government, like the lobbying or the lobbyists? Like how many lawyers these companies have that are lobbying politicians and kind of that relationship between the government and the tech companies? What I've seized on at Big Technology lately has been the funding disparity that the government's antitrust divisions have compared to the tech companies. So think about the Federal Trade Commission, which just brought a lawsuit against Facebook. They Their annual budget is around $330 million a year. 
330 million. Facebook makes 17 billion, Facebook alone, 17 billion and a quarter. So you talk about two, three days and Facebook has already exceeded uh, the funding of the FTC. And think about the Department of Justice's antitrust division. You know, that's a division that has funding under $200 million a year. I mean, so you're talking about a day. So basically, you know, a week of one tech giant, so probably the weakest tech giant's revenue, uh, equals the annual budgets of both of the antitrust arms combined. So I do think there's a definitely a mismatch where the tech giants are, you know, in much better position to fight all this antitrust stuff uh, coming from the government, just given the nature of their of their size. And so to me, whenever I hear a member of Congress, you know, talking tough about the tech giants, you know, I always say to myself, well, <laughs> you know, you have the opportunity to fund the regulatory agencies that could that could have a real impact in terms of checking their power. And you don't. So so what's going on here? And I haven't gotten any really good answers, but I think it so, sort of goes to show you what the level of seriousness in Congress that they toss a you know, million here, a million there to these agencies. But you know, I, I think that if the FTC is going to function appropriately, and this mirrors what former FTC chair William Kovacic said recently in a Senate hearing, the, the agency needs a billion dollars a year. And in fact, I just broke the news on big technology of uh, internal FTC memo that talked about severe budget restraints that are causing them to, you know, go through a hiring freeze, have to decide whether to uh, hire less experts or bring less cases, freeze IT spending. It's it's so underfunded. And then this is the agency that's charged with checking Facebook and Amazon. So it just, uh, the the mismatch is, is pretty unbelievable there. And yet nobody really speaks very much about it. So I think it's a good question you brought up. We need to focus a little bit more on the power dynamics between these companies in Washington, because right now the companies are, 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 you know, they seem to be far more powerful. What are the macro subjects that you're covering most closely on big technology? Like obviously you're covering the big tech companies, but are there some particular threads, maybe online advertising or censorship or something in, in that vein that you're covering most tightly? Yeah. I've spent a lot of time on antitrust I'm starting to, you know, I spend time on how, you know, these companies impact society. And it's not just like, you know, it's not the traditional Facebook, you know, where it's causing people to be angry at each other. You know, I like to look every now and again into how software is changing, you know, our, our sense of meaning and our sense of community, because uh, it definitely has had impacts. And then, like, I also like to just get involved in the in topics of the day. Uh, so, for instance, right now in the tech world, we have are having a big discussion of whether or not, you know, wh- whether people are going to start leaving Silicon Valley in New York and moving to places like Austin and Miami. And so for me, I'd much rather instead of writing like a Silicon Valley is dead take hot take. Uh, what I do, my, my reporting process is, as I say, that's an interesting question. You know, why don't I go to LinkedIn, which has data on, you know, where tech workers live because they self-identify right there in the headline and ask them what's happened in terms of the major shifts that have gone on in the tech world. And I'm actually publishing, you know, a a deep dive into that LinkedIn data this week that might, you know, blow up a narrative about how everybody's going to Austin because of this pandemic. So uh, that's the type of stuff I like to do. Basically, anything that's deep and nuanced and, you know, the new cycle is fun, but I'd much rather write about the systems that are acting in the background that are changing the way that we live and, and impacting these companies than taking on the latest content moderation controversy. 
What has been the impact of Substack on reporting? I think Substack is not like some people have, you know, uh, said that Substack will will save journalism. You know, I don't I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't, if you're counting on a newsletter platform to save journalism, then you don't really have a high opinion of the future of journalism. But I do think that Substack has been a great opportunity, great new avenue for reporters like myself who want to write independently. Um, I sort of had a a determination of the way that I wanted to go in my reporting, and Substack has has enabled that. And, and the thing is that we're 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 all giving it a shot, right? Like so, so my newsletter is free. I'm going to do mine largely ad supported for as long as I can. Other reporters are doing this as a subscription, but. At the end of the day, like it's a new avenue that, that we might be able to support some journalism with, and I think that's a good thing. And I think giving it a shot is definitely is definitely the move. So I was excited to move there. I moved there from BuzzFeed in the aftermath of writing the book. I had stories that I wanted to pursue and go into depth on that I felt it would give me a chance to do in great detail. And uh, honest to God, like it's uh, there's nothing more exciting than writing for an email audience. <laughs> and again, I guess this is the nerdiness coming out here. But when you write an email newsletter and it comes into people's inbox, there's like a one-to-one relationship that you can have with folks. I often get replies from people who who engage with the ideas on big technology, you know, push back or share different thoughts or say they appreciated the analysis. And I, I just find it far more satisfying than shooting articles out into the ether. So so I, I think Substack is an interesting bright spot on the internet. We don't quite know what it's going to be yet, but I think it's off to a good start, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Any final topics of conversation you'd like to explore on this episode? Well, look, I, I just want to leave with with a parting thought, which is that we know the tech giants, you know, aren't perfect. <laughs> that's for sure. But they're also doing some interesting things inside their companies that are, you know, worth taking a look at and potentially co-opting you know, in our companies. And not everything they do is going to apply one-to-one to everyone. But I think that if people go through Always Day One, or if people read big technology and they are able to implement one or two things inside their workplace that, that make them more effective, a more effective worker, a more effective manager, a more effective CEO, or, you know, for investors, make, you know, learning these things make them a more effective investors, a more, more effective investor, then I think that, that we're heading in the direction that we want. And so, Look, I'm not someone who's coming here saying I have the answer to all the world's problems, but I do think that I saw some interesting things inside the tech giants and felt obligated to tell them over and empower people with what I've learned. And I'm hoping, you know, people give it a shot and that, you know, if they do read the book or they do sign up for the newsletter or the podcast, that this stuff stuff helps them in their everyday life. Uh, that would be a, that would be a sweet victory for me. So that's sort of my my closing thought. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. Been looking forward to this and uh, really excited to have the opportunity to stop by.